This is Bright Wisconsin Conversations, Volume 2, Episode 13. What da do? What da do? What da do? So we're here today with Brian Style here at the Janesville headquarters of his campaign and his run for the 1st Congressional District. How's it going, Brian? James, I'm doing well. Thanks for coming down. So we were just talking. You have five parades tomorrow to go to. I love parades. It's an awesome way to get out, meet people, shake hands, get a chance to introduce yourself to the voters. There's nothing better than a Wisconsin parade. So Janesville native, you know all the communities around here. Which parade is the best? Yeah, born and, born and raised in Janesville. Around here, the biggest 4th of July parade is the Milton Parade. Uh, we're actually going to be wheels up, and we're going to be over on the other side of the district out of the gates. We're going to be in Franklin Oak Creek in the morning, and then slowly we're going to work our way back this direction. We're going to end the day uh, in Delavan at, uh, at 3 o'clock. So we kind of stack them all the way up. You get, uh, you get all your steps in if you're a pedometer user. So let's uh, get right into some of the issues. You're a member of the Board of Regents. Obviously, then education is very important to you. Uh, as a member of the Board of Regents, Wisconsin has had a tuition freeze uh, almost since the beginning of Gov- Governor Walker's term in office. Um, how important has it been to maintain that freeze? I know that you voted against the last budget because it raised student fees. Um, the affordability of college has got to be of, of strong interest to you. Absolutely. So I always look at what is the total cost of education to the student. So working alongside the governor, the Republicans in the state assembly and state senate, we've held the line on tuition for six years in a row. Uh, I've been on the board two and a half. We've held the line on tuition for six years in a row, which is kind of dollar for dollar, no increase, as you said. Not Washington when they hold the line on spending. It's only five, six, seven percent increases, right? But we're talking actually dollar for dollar holding the line. And then I look at the other pieces of the puzzle with what is the total cost of education? And so how do you maintain people getting through the system as quickly as possible? Right? How do you get them out in four years instead of five years? That has a really significant impact on their total cost. And then you get into housing costs and you get into student segregated fees or kind of the buckets. So as you identified two years ago, uh, although we were holding the line on tuition flat, uh, the student segregated fees I thought were increasing at a rate that I couldn't support. So I was the lone vote against it. Stand up in front of a room of uh, education people and tell them that you don't support raising fees. You'd be surprised at some of the looks you get. Uh, but I stood my ground. And I think it's important to keep those costs uh, under control. And so this year's budget, uh, those increased at a rate lower than inflation and tuition was completely flat. And so when people talk about how do you make education affordable, first and foremost is create a product that's affordable and still high quality. And so it forces the system, meaning the administration, your professors, all across the board, to find ways to be creative, to deliver a high quality product without passing that cost through uh, to the students. And I think we've been really successful 
in Wisconsin at creating a really high quality education product at a really affordable price point. And now we have a situation in, in UW campuses where the Board of Regents passed a free speech bill or a free speech uh, requirement and uh, there's obviously legislation still pending in the state legislature that would codify that into law. Uh, this Friday is the John McAdams case is finally going to come to a conclusion with the Supreme Court. The Wisconsin Supreme Court is going to uh, issue a decision in that case. Um, where do you see the role of the federal government in protecting free speech in campus? Is, the, is it a role of the federal government or is is it something that the state government should do? And maybe should the state legislature have done more? Sure. I think in large part, I mean, I'm a big supporter of free speech. So let's, let's first take what we, what we did at the Board of Regents, right, which is really telling people they don't have a veto right to stop you from saying what you want to say. So often what you saw in campus scenarios was a conservative commentator coming to campus and a liberal fringe group trying to shut that down, effectively trying to veto the conservative right to free speech. So it goes both ways, but everybody deserves that right to free speech. And so what we did at the university level was to codify that right, that you have a right as a conservative in particular, to be able to voice your opinion on campus and you don't ha someone else doesn't have their ability to shut you down. Then how do you implement that at kind of a state at a school level, a state level, and a federal level? I think it's best handled right there at the school, right? So the the closer you are to the problem, the better off you're able to address it. Uh, and so I think the University of Wisconsin system, we took some really positive steps to make sure that that's enacted and put in place. And I think we've seen positive results of that so far. Um, the to the extent the state then codifies that rule, I'm supportive of that. Uh, but I think the university really handled it well. And then the federal level. Uh, I look and think, you know, until there's instances where we need to step in and place additional rules and regulations, I rarely think that additional rules and regulations from the Department of Education are worth the bureaucratic nightmare that they create to get the positive result. I think they're best addressed as locally to the problem as we can. Is the cost then of, tu let's go back to the cost of tuition in higher education. Is the cost of higher education then best addressed, best addressed at the state level, or is that something that you see Congress having a role in? So, so it's best addressed at the state level, but let me nuance that a little bit. So the federal government completely has a role. And so if you look at how the accreditation process occurs, so to get federal student aid, you need to be going to an accredited school. The accreditation process is the Department of Education effectively farms out to third-party entities this ability to accredit schools. And what's resulted is a reasonably cookie-cutter approach across the entire United States, all 50 states, is to how schools are able to become accredited. And so what it's done is it's stifled creativity at a more local level to allow people to prepare their workforce for their own jobs in the future. And so maybe a good example of that is the two-year mergers into the four-year schools of the University of Wisconsin system. So just recently, uh, the two-year schools are now merged into the four-year schools. So for example, UW-Rock County is now part of the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. That needed to be approved by the federal accrediting agency, effectively graced in by the Department of Education. So the Board of Regents, we made a decision that it was in the best interest of our state, the best interest of our students, the best interest of our taxpayers to make this structural change. But then the federal government comes in and has a step in the way of us actually going and able to implement that. We have to go to them and get their good graces. Functionally, that's just a layer of bureaucracy and a layer of cost. If you saw the amount of paper, 
the amount of time and effort that went in to accomplish that final step in the process that added, in my opinion, no value, it completely wasn't worth it. And so then you say, how do you drive down costs? You create those efficiencies. So the more we can get the federal government out of the way of bureaucratic regulations and red tape onto our schools, and that's high schools, tech schools, and colleges and universities, universities in particular where I've been focused on, the better off we are and the better we're going to be able to deliver high-quality education that's affordable to students and taxpayers. So let's switch gears here. Your potential Democratic opponent, Randy Bryce, has come out in favor of abolishing ICE, uh, the, the government agency in charge of our border enforcement and immigration. Uh, he is, he's uh, taken the same position that Congressman Mark Pocan of Madison has taken. Uh, where do you stand on that, and what is your reaction when you hear such a radical proposal on, on immigration? It's completely reactionary. So what we're what what my opponents are saying, right, is that they want to end the enforcement of our immigration laws and our customs laws. So ICE, immigration and customs enforcement, we need to enforce our laws. To me, it's not that terribly complicated. And so what we're seeing is a reactionary pullback. Uh, instead of addressing maybe any concerns that they have, let's have an adult conversation rather than reactionary pullback against enforcing the nation's laws uh, thoughtfully. And so we need to enforce our immigration laws. We need to enforce our customs laws. And the reactionary pullback is just kind of a, it's, it's an epidemic of some of those on the far left uh, as to how they're reacting when we want to actually enforce the laws that are on the books in this nation. And then... Um from your background in the private sector, you have a little bit different perspective of how the uh, Trump tax cuts are, are affecting the private industry. With, uh, so can you talk a little bit about your position on, on the tax cuts and why they're so important for your district? Sure. Great question. So I'm supportive of the tax cuts. I think part of that uh, is the proof is in the pudding, right? So we passed mm -hmm. some of these conservative economic reforms and look at where the economy is, 2.8% unemployment. But how does this impact uh, employers and how does it impact jobs right here in Southeast Wisconsin? And so a big piece of that is making the, our jobs and our economic growth internationally competitive. And so historically, we had a structure that really disincentivized individuals from coming here, hiring our employees and growing jobs right here in Southeast Wisconsin because it was tax advantageous to produce product outside the United States. What we finally did for the first time is created a tax structure that incentivized people to come back to the United States and grow and develop jobs right here. And so the business decision that's being made by companies, by investors, by individuals to relocate their operations to southeast Wisconsin and take advantage of what's really the best workforce, not just in the United States, it's the best workforce in the entire world right here in southeast Wisconsin. Our infrastructure is really strong. Our, we have an educated worker base. And we finally put in place tax structures and tax laws that incentivize businesses to come here, open up, and take advantage of the labor uh, that is here. And that's part of the reason we're seeing this re reduction on the unemployment rate. We're seeing high, high rates of employment, and we're seeing job growth. So there's companies like Foxconn that are coming to southeast Wisconsin, Racine County. Why are they coming? They're coming here to take advantage, in large part, of our labor, that we have really high-quality labor in this region. And for the first time, we have tax laws that actually incentivize them to come here, hire our people, and pay family-sustaining wages. So it's an exciting opportunity. We're really at the cusp of some of the greatest economic growth we've seen in a really long time. 
you see Foxconn coming to Wisconsin as a positive, not a negative. Absolutely. I think the more businesses that open here in southeast Wisconsin, the better it is for the workers that are here, the better it is for our state. Uh, it's terrific that companies want to come here to take advantage of what is one of the best business environments they can be. And the workers are the people that actually benefit in the end, right? There's competition for workers that there hasn't been in this area for a very long time, which has resulted in the beginning of increased wages, outpacing the rising healthcare costs, where people are seeing real wage growth for the first time in a long time. And when I am out there talking to people, people are for the first time in a while optimistic about the economic growth that's occurring and how that's having a real tangible impact in their lives. So final question before we take a break here. The uh, Speaker Paul Ryan has obviously made a large part of his career about talking about entitlement spending and the deficit and bringing government spending under control. Yeah, when we talk about the Trump tax cuts, they're talking about projecting out large deficits down the road and increasing the national debt. How do you reconcile the two, the benefits of the tax cuts, but at the same time, the need to bring the federal debt under control? Sure. Great question. So as I always look at it, the federal government has a spending problem, not a taxing problem. So the issue is that we don't have enough taxes. The issue is we have too much spending. And so a piece of that is going to be overall entitlement reform. And what we've struggled is the House has passed some, some good, positive entitlement reforms, but the Senate can't seem to get anything done. And so ultimately, we're going to have to come to the table and look for a long-term, probably bipartisan solution to bring into, the, bring into force some entitlement reforms so we can protect these programs so that they exist not, for the generation, not only for the generation that's in retirement, for the generation that's near retirement. And there's going to be a need for big, bold, conservative reforms to get that done. But ultimately, Washington has a spending problem, and we need to address the spending side of Washington to maintain our economic growth and to really protect some of these programs for generations to come. All right, so we're going to pause right here, and then when we come back, we'll discuss Brian Seil, the Janesville resident for life, and and uh, his background and where he actually comes from and who, who he is today. So we'll be right back. Want to learn how to be a sponsor of this podcast? Email us at business at rightwisconsin.com, and we'll help you reach the right audience in Wisconsin. Okay, we're back. So let's let's get into the biography a little bit here. Born and raised in Janesville. Yep. Born and raised in the district. Oh yeah. Lifelong resident. Um. So, where where are you right now? What is, what is your current career? Sure. So I've worked in manufacturing for the last nine years. So I've lived in Janesville. I bought my home, the current home that I'm in, about four years ago. Um, and I worked at a company called Regal Beloit Corporation in Beloit. It's about a 15, 20-minute commute from my house in Janesville. And what Regal Beloit makes is oversimplified electric motors. And so they do that across the district and across the globe. And then I left Regal Beloit a uh, little over uh, about a year ago and joined a company called Charter NEX. And Charter NEX is a large plastics manufacturing company uh, that manufactures flexible plastic packaging. So you go in your grocery store, things that used to be in tins and cans and boxes, more and more of that's in flexible plastic. That's the type of plastic the Charter NEX makes. Uh, and my role in that capacity is I have, a, I have a business degree and a law degree, and it's kind of hybrid of the two. And it's figuring out how do you expand uh, the operations of those plants. So new plant expansion, acquisitions, 
that type of project has really been my portfolio uh, for both of those large manufacturing companies. And so in that, you learn a ton about how to produce a product, how to solve problems day in and day out, and really teamwork of how do you pull a group of people together to solve a problem in a manufacturing context. I love it. It's a ton of fun. It's sophisticated work. And uh, my favorite part is I can do it from my hometown here in Janesville. So why, why leave the private sector and come back to politics? And we should say, before you were in the private sector, you did actually work for House Speaker Ryan, for those that are unaware. Yeah, so maybe go, if you go far enough yeah. back, right? So about 15 years ago when I graduated from college, I had a business degree. Accounting finance was kind of the core of it. And I went to work for Paul Ryan. I always tell people, it was back when you had to explain to people who Paul Ryan was. That's no longer the case now that he's speaker. And I was an economist and budget advisor. So before Paul was well known uh, for his budget and for his economic reforms, that's what I was working on for him. I did that for a little over a year before returning to Wisconsin. Uh, I've always been involved on kind of a public policy side. So I've always felt it's important. Uh, and, you know, really, you go back and you think big picture. Democracy requires the involvement of all of our citizens. And so I've always been involved in that capacity. If you came to a, a Republican picnic uh, in Rock County during the past 10 years, I was probably the guy that handed you a name tag when you arrived. I sent you the invitations. I put up the yard signs, et cetera. So I've always been involved, and I always felt it's important uh, that we're all involved if we want to continue this great idea that is American democracy. Um, and so I've always been involved. And then when this opportunity came up, I looked at where I was in life, looked at what uh, my background was in manufacturing, private sector, kind of educational public policy, and thought, uh, you know, there's a real need for that type of mindset and approach in Congress. I uh, got a number of phone calls. People reached out to me, encouraged me to run. Uh, and I ultimately made a decision just over two months ago, April 22nd, uh, that I was going to get in this race and uh, work my tail off to earn the trust and confidence of the voters. And so since then, we've been running around the district, meeting with people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, talking about our ideas, my views on how things can get done, how we can improve the country, how we can take the next step of conservative reforms. And every day with, uh, with my team, I feel like we keep taking a step in the right direction and building up the operation that we're going to need to be successful come fall. Okay, but, you know, you mentioned that, but, I mean, one of the things that I've discovered in doing these podcast interviews is the number of pe people, especially in the Republican side, that didn't necessarily have to get involved in politics. I mean, you have a lot of people that would get right out of college and the first thing they do is they get involved in politics and they slowly work up the ladder. But you're a person that actually had a life outside of politics. Oh, yeah. And now you're making that jump into it and you know how nasty it can get because you've observed it and you know how personal it can get and yet you're still willing to jump into that fray. Is that... I mean, Especially in Wisconsin, I mean, the left is active and loony. <laughs> I mean, does it be fair, right? Yeah, so I, I look at it and I say, well, doggone it, it's worth it, right? So if you believe in this country and the economic growth that we're having and what we need to get done, you got to step in and get the work done. Somebody's got to do it. Uh, and I felt like I had the opportunity to do it myself. And so I believe in this idea of democracy. I'm a citizen legislator. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to work my tail off for a period of time and come right back to my home here in Janesville. Uh, and go right back to the great companies that I've been working for in a manufacturing setting. And so I get fed up day in and day out with some of the things the federal government's doing uh, that really prevents the American economy from really unleashing its full strength. And so I look at some of my friends that I went to high school with, people that are in my community uh, here in southeast Wisconsin, and think, man, if we got the federal government out of the way, 
If we allow the American economy to grow at the rate and strength that it could, if wages increase like they should, where would we all be? We'd all be in a much better spot. And so really, it's kind of this deep down, well, doggone it, we got to go fight for this thing. And so my ideas are really different than my Democratic opponent's ideas. Terrific. So they're going to come after me? Sure. But it's completely for the right reasons that I'm willing to get in this thing, is to say, yeah, let's put my ideas up against kind of what I view is a completely different economic view that my opponents have of how to make the United States a better place. I think when we take our ideas and we go toe-to-toe with the ideas that are on kind of what I view as a bit of the far left, we're going to win. And so, sure, we've learned in Wisconsin that you got to go out there and have that fight. But ultimately, if we put our kind of conservative, pro-growth, pro-job agenda up against anybody else's every day, in and out, we're going to win. It's just going to be a dogfight. It's going to take a lot of work. They might say some things that are ridiculous. uh, But ultimately, it's worth it because who else is going to do it? And we believe in this country that uh, we love and that we call home. So we're going to give you a two-question test to prove that you're a real Janesville resident. <laughs> uh, first question is, Is what do you order at the Italian house? The drive through number six, which is tortellini, garlic bread, and an orange crush. Okay. Is it- <laughs> Too much detail, maybe. <laughs> and then the, and the second question is, is uh, favorite thing to pick up at Sorg's? I always end up with the, uh, the frozen Italian sausages. This weekend on Saturday, I was driving back and grabbed the brats. Uh, you can never have too many brats, but sometimes I end up with, they have a really good hot uh, Italian sausage that they have. It's always frozen, uh, but I thaw it out and it really cooks up nicely on the grill. It's an awesome butcher shop. All right. Well, thanks for joining me today, Brian. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. The British are coming, the British are coming. Now the ride of Paul Revere set the nation on its ear. And the shot at Lexington heard round the world. When the British fired in the early dawn, the War of Independence had begun. The die was cast, the rebel flag unfurled. And on to Concord, marched the foe to seize the arsenal. There you know, waking folks and searching all around. Our militia stopped them in their tracks At the old North Bridge we turned them back And chased those redcoats back to Boston town Al shot her around the world Was the start of the revolution The Minutemen were ready on the move Take your powder, take your guns Support to General Washington Hurry men, there's not an hour to lose Now famous Bunker Hill Though we had lost, it was quite a thrill The rebel colonel, Prescott, proved he was wise Outnumbered and low on ammunition As the British stormed his position He said, hold your fire till you see the whites of their eyes Though the next few years were rough General Washington's men proved they were tough Those hungry, ragged boys would not be one night they crossed the Delaware Surprised the Hessians in their lair And at Valley Forge just bumbled up their feet Now the shot heard round the world Was the start of the revolution The Minutemen were ready on the move Take your blankets, take your sons Report to General Washington We've got our rights and now it's time to prove well, they showed such determination that they won the admiration of countries across the sea like France and Spain. Who 
Who owned the colony ships and guns and put the British on the run And the Continental Army on its feet again Though we lost some battles too The Americans swore they'd see it through They kept up raiding parties hit and run Yorktown, the British could not retreat Bottled up by Washington and the French fleet Cornwallis surrendered and finally we had won Hooray! And shot her around the world It was the end of the revolution The Continental Rebel took the day And the father of our country beat the British there at Yorktown Brought freedom to you and me in the USA Bless America!